Getting grain growers to work closely with the resource sector is not always a given. Hello, I'm Melina Morrison, CEO of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals, or BCCM. We're taking a trip to the driest state in Australia, where on the Eyre Peninsula in South Australia, there's such cooperation, which is providing a benefit to what has long been a history of grain production and also the resource sector. The BCCM's podcast series, Meet the Co-op Farmers, has been taking a look at co-ops around the country, and this time Michael Kavanagh had a chat with Tim Schultz. He's the Managing Director of the Eyre Peninsula Cooperative Bulk Handling. Melina, in nearly every business, whether it be the corner store or in primary production, consistency of supply always seems to be something not far from people's minds. This came through in grower surveys over the past five years carried out by Grain Producers South Australia. In its case, it was the things such as storage, handling, and also freight and export. I could understand it would be frustrating for growers. So, Michael, let's hear from Tim Schultz and how not only are the grain growers in this area solving the problems through a co-op, but part of this involves the resource company, Adelaide-based Iron Road Limited. The Air Peninsula essentially was opened up to white settlements, so Indigenous um, groups had been here, obviously, for thousands of years. It was essentially opened up in two ways. The first was a pastoralist leaseholding, uh, which happened in the 1860s, and uh, the area was occupied by large pastoral leases with sheep, essentially the, the main agricultural pursuit, pastoralism. Combination of the government of the day increasing uh, lease rates and rabbits meant that that industry really ceased by the 1890s. And then the next agricultural wave occurred with the um, state pushing a railway line from Port Lincoln north right through the middle of the Air Peninsula and ultimately right up to Sejuna. So in our case, that railway line arrived in around 1913, the end of 1913. And my maternal grandfather selected land in uh, May 1914, was granted land in or purchased land in 1914 in our district. And so as the railway line moved north, the, the opening up for agriculture really occurred as that, as that occurred, as that railway line moved forward. Uh, there was, the Air Peninsula has no natural water other than right down the bottom where there are underground catchments. And so for the early settlers, water was provided also by the train and each siding used to get its quota. And my mother used to tell me that uh, generally they were tar line tanks and often they'd leak, but whatever was your area's quota, that's what you got. If it was empty, bad luck, you waited for the next train. So water was uh, provided uh, north in the early 20s, so about 10 years later. And agriculture is predominantly dry land agriculture. It was mixed uh, and is probably now running 80% cropping, 20% um, sheep cattle. And in the primary industry sector, that's, as you say, the basis of it. There is one water-based agriculture economy, and that is uh, there's aquaculture as well. Yes, so, so that originally um, the porn industry started up in Port Lincoln. I had been fishing for a long time around the coastal areas and really good fishing. 
prawns uh, came into being in the 50s and then tuna followed. And since then, you know, they call Port Lincoln the seafood capital of, of Australia. So there are uh, oysters, um, abalone, um, and they're farmed. Tuna is wild caught and then farmed. Um, kingfish now farmed. So it's a, it's a very big industry on the coast. And the other aspect and uh, the rail and the expansion of the rail would have certainly influenced that, and that's uh, mining as well. No, we really had little impact on mining. So the rail system on Air Peninsula was a closed system. It was narrow gauge and it was just really built um, as a method, way of opening up the country. And, of course, if you put that in today's context, that would have never happened because um, it's native vegetation. A lot of native vegetation had to be cleared. The mining occurs or today has occurred around the Wyala region related to iron ore and um, that has its own rail system that runs into Wyala but doesn't connect to, to the rest of Air Peninsula. So Air Peninsula is effectively cut off except by road and, and air links. Well, with cereal in particular being a dominant part of the primary sector for the Air Peninsula, the cooperative itself, what was the genesis behind that? So the genesis behind the cooperative, um, I'd been involved, obviously, in agri-politics through the 80s and 90s, predominantly. Came back, as it were, home and got involved in local government politics, the third tier of government. Um, and as a community, we had our mining company do some serious investigations around a brownfield deposit that had been identified in the 1960s. There was a company called Iron Road. And uh, since they first arrived in 2008, that company has spent uh, better than $160 million developing a magnetite deposit, um, which is right in the centre of Air Peninsula. That resource is about 4.5 billion tonne of magnetite, but it's in an area where there is, in fact, no historical mining industry or mining records. So... Uh, for any mine to develop, it has to pick up every piece of infrastructure you can name, which is port, water, power, rail, um, everything. So the company had developed that as a prospect and still has uh, as a prospect that's now listed in, in priority probably in the top five or six deposits in the world. But there's yet to be um, the build of that project is yet to commence and that's subject to partners and funding as most of these deposits are so i was mayor of my community when that mining company arrived um, we as a community through the council made a decision that if the deposit was good enough it would be mined and the best way forward for the community was to work out how to maximize value around a mining operation so from a council point of view, we did a lot of work in making sure that if there was any de um, development in relation to workforce, that it wasn't an enclave, that it was integrated into the community. So that planning has been done quite extensively. Uh, and then in 2013, I actually relinquished my position in council and joined the mining company as a principal advisor, stakeholder engagement. And from my view that was really to make sure that if the mining company was going to develop that mine that we had as much say as possible as a community 
and also the mining company had said they wanted to be long-term community members and and uh, i saw my role as as assisting the company understand the culture and also assisting the community to try to get to grips with what a mining company could bring so um that mining project had both a mine operation uh it needed to export and there are no export ports on the peninsula to handle that volume of iron ore and so it seemed obvious that given that we're in a situation where in south australia there was a uh, an absolute monopoly on grain um, infrastructure it was the old SACBH, ABB being taken over by Viterra. Um, there was a very strong view generally of farmers that, you know, we were being held hostage with only one option. In fact, one option is no option at all, it is what is. And so there seemed an opportunity for the mining company and for agriculture to say that if there were new port facilities developed, then agriculture should be around the table. Obviously, I've been talking with a lot of lot of uh, farmers across the journey. Uh, we put together a workshop of interested farmers, and that workshop decided that yes, we there was an opportunity here. We wanted to be involved, and we chose a cooperative as the model, a structural model to take that forward. Up until then, as you said, you're almost being held hostage about where you could, um, first of all, transport your grain to and then how that was distributed. You got together with the community. You came up. Why the co-op itself? So if, if you go back to the history of uh, South Australian co-op with bulk handling and the various evolutions of that process back in the, in the 1990s through 2000, where cooperatives uh, fell from favour with governments generally, you know, it was, oh, you can't fund them, you can't get equity, they're old school. That culminated in the sale or the loss of SACBH. Uh, it morphed into ABB, uh, but then ultimately there was a sale. Uh, Air Peninsula Farmers generally, we were part of that process, but we produce a lot of grain, but our numbers are quite small because the farms are quite large. And even though essentially you could say we lost the vote so even though uh, that was sold and air peninsula farmers were involved in that there was a significant dissatisfaction with the process um which we could do nothing about so when we talked through the various structures um there was a very clear message from those founding cop members that we didn't want to go down a process and and be corporatised and or sold out down the track. If we're going to go on this journey, we wanted it wanted to be a a long view, long outcome. And it was actually interesting. I was talking with some of the companies that we that we're talking with in the process. Um, your question comes up as uh, as to what farmers want out of it, and we want a multi generational development if it's going to happen and we're successful we want that to be for multi-generations and uh, you know we had the comment oh yes but we've got a long-term view well what is your long-term view uh seven to ten years you know i have 600 years of farming history around my board table and that is the difference it's a big difference yes you say they're large farms small number of farmers as i understand it when you started in 2017 
there were 12 farmers involved. What was the structure in the financing? Uh, look, the structure and financing, we would not have got uh, on board without the help of the Farming Together program. So everybody kicked in a little bit of money. Now, luckily for the cooperative, the mining company had given me carte blanche to um, work because I'd said, look, farmers need skin in the game and I think there's a way to do it. And they had given me free reign to work while being paid by Iron Road in that instance. And so that's still the case today. I, I'm partially employed by Iron Road, so I'm still principal advisor, stakeholder engagement with Iron Road. But they have helped immeasurably with, with the running around and the base stuff that you need to do to develop a cooperative. And we've had uh, strong support from the first Farming Together program and the second Farming Together program. And um, so we've had really good federal government support effectively haven't been able to jag any support from the state government, but we live in hope in relation to that. So it's been a, a low cost. All our boards are voluntary. They're still voluntary. Uh, they're passionate. And it's a matter of uh, establishing some milestones and seeing if we can knock those over one by one, but understanding this is a, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And the share in the cooperative itself, the farmer who wants to be a member puts up understand it was $1,000 each, does that give you one vote or can you buy more than that initial $1,000? No, we're absolutely traditional cooperatives. So the $1,000 was a joining fee and then farmers were required to buy 200 shares. And so that's been the case. And we've actually grown to about 138 farm businesses, which comprises probably close to 270 farm families. But it is... Um, one membership, one vote regardless. So at the moment, we only have had 200 shares allocated. We've had a, bit, a capital raise using cooperative capital units, which has been, you know, is a voluntary take-up. But the principle of, of one membership, uh, one vote for the cooperative um, is essential. Uh, and so we have farmers who uh, probably produce in excess of... 25,000 tonne of grain and other farmers that are probably struggling to produce 1,000 to 1,500 tonne of grain. And that's one of the key principles of the cooperative that people, people actually wanted. Tim, the cooperative itself, it's made up on the Eyre Peninsula, but if you're a grain grower elsewhere in South Australia and you want to be a part of that grain being exported through the cooperative, is that open to a farmer from another part of the state? It's restricted by activity, which is uh, growing grain. Of course, we're not in the stage where that element of the cooperative we have to be too sanctimonious about because we're actually still in start-up and development mode. But what we're talking about is really export facilities on Air Peninsula firstly, but if there are other people that wanted to, there'd be no barrier providing you're a grain grower. Uh, in addition, with cooperative capital units, you know, we have had a first issue of those and we've had some non-agricultural backers um, take up those CCUs, which has been very important. And also we're open to um, the cooperative either evolving or being subsets of the cooperative because there are other opportunities opening up to us or being offered to us and we're trying to work out how how we uh, how we take advantage of that without losing sight of the of the main goal, which is 
the development of alternate export facilities so that the farmers actually have ownership and we'd like eventually substantial ownership in the farm gate chips hole business. Farmers are always seen as the supreme optimists. You know, when you started this up, you're in the grip of a drought. Did you sometimes think, what are we doing? Oh, many times. And I think uh, around the board table, we probably do that regularly. <laughs> um, what are we doing? So from the start-up, the, the first elements that happened, if you like, the first milestone was the cooperative um, agreed or developed a memorandum of understanding with Iron Road, the mining company, and that's to work together in the event of the port being developed, which is at a location called Cape Hardy. And uh, since that time, you know, we've achieved a, a number of things. One has been obviously an increased membership, with those members being made very aware that this is startup and developmental and there is no guarantee of success. So, you know, it was high risk for them to be a member and to be a shareholder, uh, but we've managed to grow our membership. And along the way, we've started to pick up uh, and build other relationships with other industry groups that have interests on Air Peninsula and uh, potentially providing opportunities for agriculture on Air Peninsula. So it's a matter of uh, ticking along. We still have a good, very good relationship with Iron Road. And the default position of what we're trying to do is that that mine goes ahead, the port is built, and then grain becomes one of the multi-commodity elements of that port. I'm Michael Kavner. I'm talking to the CEO of the Air Peninsula Cooperative Bulk Handling, Tim Shops, who is a farmer in the area itself. Tim, you mentioned how there are non-agriculture interests that have been showing interest in the co-op itself. Does companies like Iron Road in the mining industry be a part of that co-op as well as shareholders? No, Iron Road isn't a shareholder. They, they would not be able to fulfil the activity um, component, which is being an actual grain grower. Uh, however, they have shown obviously strong interest in supporting me and my role. But along the journey, we, and quite very early on, we came into contact with people that are involved in the development of the new renewables, so the hydrogen ammonia industries. And one of those companies is a company called H2U, which has shown, had a lot of interest in Air Peninsula since 2017-18 and currently has a major project at Port Benighton, which is um, around the port, around the Wyala area. And it might say, well, what relationship does that have with agriculture? Of course, they're interested in the port. So a deep water port at Cape Hardy has a good location and they're, they're project pipelines while they're they're focused on at the moment Gladstone in Queensland and um, Port Benison in South Australia they have a pipeline of projects that that develop and uh, Cape Hardy has huge potential because it is a 20 meter plus deep water port that will not require dredging that is absolutely unique in Australia and it's in an area where it would be a greenfield port without a huge population base around it. Now, people can say, well, that's a, a, uh, that creates problems. But it creates huge opportunities for industry because most of the ports of the world have you know, populations, community cities have grown up around the ports because that's where the trade happened. 
and then all of a sudden you're trying you're compromising if you're trying to shoehorn industry into existing population bases and so with the green ammonia industry or the green hygiene industry it is to its advantage to have plenty of space and not to be constrained by uh, all the issues that that trying to do that either on the fringe of the city or outlying to a city so iron road itself has 1100 hectares port site whereas farmers have and it's been one of the things we've done as a cooperative we've uh, actually purchased a, a pretty strategic site um, which abuts up to iron road portland on two sides of uh, some 160 hectares so we had been talking with with H2U for some time. In fact, we completed a memorandum of understanding with H2U about three or four months ago. And that's predicated on the development of the green ammonia or hydrogen industry. And, you know, the H2U process produces green ammonia, which is ammonia that doesn't have any carbon in the chain. And that green ammonia um, certainly is sought after, will be sought after globally to reduce um, carbon emissions. So it can be used in the electricity production industry. Uh, potentially Japan's talking about adding green ammonia to its coal-fired power stations as an infeed with a consequent reduction in carbon. But green ammonia, most of the ammonia we use, 50% of the world's fertiliser is ammonia-based, and that all comes out of coal seam gas or, or the fossil fuel industry. So there's a huge opportunity to replace that with green ammonia because then that drives down the, the carbon footprint of agriculture. So maybe the connections are a bit vague at this stage, but the potential to be involved and have a place at the table around green ammonia production and then to bring that back into agriculture, either as fertiliser or ultimately as uh, using ammonia as a carrier for hydrogen, which is what it is, back into some of the transport and logistics that seemed an opportunity we couldn't ignore. So we're heavily involved with that group as well. You go around the rest of the country where mining and farming is occurring, there's the inevitable tensions, particularly you think in New South Wales and the Hunter Valley region and going further north in the rich, fertile area of the Liverpool Plains. This one, you're seem to be working very closely, not just with the use of the, the port, but also research and what have you. How have you overcome or avoided those inevitable tensions between the mining industry and uh, the farmers of the Air Peninsula who've been there a long time? You can't remove the tension. You can't paper over the tension. The tension will be there and ongoing. It's really how you manage that. And so what we've tried to do from an iron road perspective is to make sure that the company is always available. It's transparent in what it does, and it doesn't change its mind. So one of the things that interested me when I joined Iron Road was to, to um, assist the company to get an understanding that Air Peninsula is ult the ultimately connected location. So up and down the peninsula, people have either played sport with each other or married each other etc and so uh, you know I, I joked to them and said look if you say something in Port Lincoln it will be at Sejuna faster than the speed of light um, so the company I think has come to understand that and it's not about overpowering the opposition it's about being respectful in listening to it but also continually trying to present 
what diversity could do for the Eyre Peninsula. What that means in, in fact is that the people who are affected by the mine site itself, for some of those, you know, that will be, that's life-changing and some have a great deal of difficulty with that. Likewise, in the mine project, there was a transport corridor or logistics corridor between the mine and the port. Now, that affects about 45 landholders with uh, initially in the first iteration of the mine, it was a rail line. Currently, it's a hall road across properties. So for some of those people, do you ever get to where they say, yes, we're comfortable with this? Maybe, maybe not. But what we've been able to do is sit down and discuss with those people and find ways to lessen impact or find other opportunities that that they may get as a result of being a landholder in the corridor and it's fair to say that uh, you know we've the cops had discussions with iron road about use of that hall road if and when it's built uh, and we'll continue those discussions going so there's some opportunities in that space so yes, it, it's it's difficult, and there's been questions asked of the cooperative of why you're getting into bed with a mining company. It's not exactly getting into bed with a mining company, but what the mining company does is offer an opportunity and a genuine opportunity to agriculture because the mining company also needs the goodwill of the community. So the cooperative is, is trading two ways. Um, we believe we can bring value and competitiveness on a, on a significant scale for a long time to agriculture the diversity that mining can provide you know can bring skill set in can provide skilled work opportunities um, because like most rural communities our biggest uh, export has been for the last 20 years has been people the last 30 years and uh, like uh, many regions around we are denuded of skills and of people to do the skills. So, you know, maybe it's pie in the sky, maybe it's a bit of dreaming, but um, sure as hell, if you sit back and just um, complain about it, nothing will ever change. So the cops are a way we see of, of being in that space and, and working collectively to get better outcomes for us, but also provide an opportunity for the mining company to do what they've said they'll do, and that's become an integrated part of the community for the long term. Co-ops are very much tuned to the community and co-ops sometimes provide funding to community groups or scholarships to try to keep people to stay in the region or they turn the money back into the shareholders. For your co-op, what happens to the surplus? We'd love to be in that position and certainly... We take the principles of the cooperatives very seriously. So we would we would love to be to get into a, such a state that we could provide community programs and community support. The surplus certainly would go back to its members, but it's what proportions of the surplus and what what do you do as good and responsible community citizens as a cooperative? And so that's certainly in everybody's mind. We. We don't spend too much time thinking about that because that's an elusive dream at the moment. We really just have to continue to survive and hit our milestones and continue to build relationships with the groups that can help us get there. I guess one of the one of the big issues that we find as a cooperative that we would describe ourselves as a relationship-based organisation. And while a lot of other groups claim that, 
um, when you really get into the nitty gritty, you soon end up back in transactional based culture. And so matching a relationship based organization that has to be transactional to be successful, but matching that as a core value compared to a group that really is about the bottom line and the return to their, their owners. That's a difficulty that um, you only work your way through with, with trial and error. There, there's no rule book. There's no easy way to do that. Uh, so what we've tended to do is actually be able to build um, relationships. And so we've done that with HU and there's a couple of other groups that we have uh, MOUs or soon to have MOUs. And that's really been based around the relationship of what we want to achieve, um, firstly, and then how can we put that into some sort of transactional arrangement that, that enables that? That's very much work in progress. As I understand it, around about 94% of the uh, crops that are grown on the Air Peninsula are exported. Does that mean that the co-op, the grain gets taken down to the deep water port and off it goes? Or are you getting also involved in the marketing of the grain of the area, whether it be into Asia, a major market, Europe, or even that small amount back into Australia? Look, initially, conceptually, from a cooperative point of view, it's about logistics and handling. And the reason for that is that given our size and our startup basis, you know, the idea that we could conceivably make a difference in the first period by marketing grain was a task too hard um, a goal too far. A lot of the major grain exporters around the world regularly both run surpluses but also um, burn money in some years. And our board felt right from day one, we thought, yes, it would be great. But when you actually look at the practicalities of that, um, that's a really, really dangerous game to be in. Uh, and so we've firmly focused on the logistics and handling. Having said that, we're building relationships. So, so one of the key elements of that, of uh, a grain port, if you like, at Cape Hardy or grain going out to Cape Hardy, was that we wanted to work with grain traders and exporters, but we wanted that port to be transparent uh, so that whoever wants to buy grain from our farm sector knows that they have every chance of getting appropriate shipping slots and so they're on an equal basis across the board from a, from a grain trader perspective. And when we've talked to grain exporters, we said, well, this is fundamental to us. We want to help provide a platform that will enable you, if you're an exporter, to put your best case forward and win the grain based on your service and what you provide and not be trying to do that with one hand tied behind your back because you have limited opportunities to, to use the export chain. So that's been pretty fundamental with us. What would happen going forward is we've also said we're more than open to developing relationships either with end users uh, and with the traders, as long as that, that key understanding happens. And we're seeing that. And there's a lot of interest out there a lot of interest watching the co-op saying, well, if you're successful, we want to be talking to you. We want to be doing business with you. And of course, we're, we're in this classic catch-22 situation of uh, knowing the prize but still not having a clear pathway to get there necessarily. 
Tim, does the co-op also provide expertise such as bringing an agronomist to work with the uh, farmers at different times of the season? No, that's, that's you know, a lot of the American co-ops certainly have that. Um, our size and our status at the moment, that precludes that. Having said that, um, some of our members work in as agronomists on the Air Peninsula, so they work uh, under the current either either as individuals in their own businesses or for some of the other companies. So we're, we're pretty well serviced in that sector across EP, so it's not an area we've, uh, we've even considered at this point in time. Tim Schultz is my guest today. He's the CEO of the Air Peninsula Cooperative Bulk Handling and a farmer himself. I'm Michael Kavner. Tim, you made mention numerous times about uh, Indigenous presence on the Air Peninsula. What's the co-op doing in relation to not just ensuring that there's cultural sensitivity, but also possibly in a business sense as well? Yeah, so Iron Road uh, has uh, successfully completed an Iliwa with the Bungala Nation. And the Bungala are tribal owners of certainly the eastern portion of their peninsula where we're mostly concentrated. So Iron Road has had a good working relationship with, with the Bungala for many years. I've been part of that process and also in my own personal space you know um, I've been to school and college with a number of Indigenous mates uh, Indigenous friends so we've always had an awareness of that space over the journey we've also developed a relationship with Indigenous business and we also um, reached agreement with Wolga Mining and Services that's an Indigenous owned business that operates in the iron ore trade out of Wyala. They're the chief contractor at Iron Knob, uh, quite a big business. So we've actually concluded a memorandum of, of understanding with Wolga Mining and Services. And that's really about working cooperatively together in the business development area around Cape Hardy. So they also want to be involved and want to be part of the process. And, and this is a way we felt that if there's opportunities that... Um, we can jointly work together. First step is formally acknowledge that in a memorandum of understanding. So that's a really good relationship and we've been working with Wolga again for as uh, least as long as H2U or possibly longer. So that's a really interesting development and we'll, we'll wait and see where that goes. Quite a few ideas in mind in that space. It's interesting from a collaborative point of view that our farmers are focused on getting more opportunity and more competitiveness into the grain system. And so we're very conscious that we don't want to be sidetracked into, into other things that take us away from that key focus. But particularly now per, having a land base at Cape Hardy to enhance the potential for the grain business to succeed, uh, it's obvious that there are other businesses that, that want to join the journey with us. And, and Walgar is one of those groups. Do you also find that possibly being a community-based organisation, there's greater trust between yourselves and the Indigenous communities as opposed to them seeing larger corporations coming in? I'd like to think that that is the case. And certainly we're, we're there and present always in the community. And, and again, you know, 
most of our guys have been guys and girls. Most of our farm families have been on the land a long time. Uh, our peninsula is characterised by most of the families that remain are the survivors of a long history of drought because it's a pretty tough place to farm, particularly from about halfway up where I am, you know, uh, yeah, there's some pretty been some pretty hard times in the past, and and you can see that that our grain production, which averages around two and a half million ton per annum, has a high of I think three point four million ton on a low of nine hundred thousand ton. So there's a big variation in production. So you know there are new farmers coming into the region, probably attracted by lower land prices. Although everything seems to be on the move upward at the moment, but you know moving away from that. It's a hard place to farm and it's a hard place to survive. And so, you know, agriculture has a strong connection to the land. The bungalow, certainly traditional owners have a thousands of years connection to, to their land. And hopefully there's some synergies with that. Now, given that it is a very tough area to farm and uh, you've got a small number of members and yet there is expensive infrastructure when it does come to grain handling. As a co-op, how have you gone about dealing with financial institutions when you have needed to go cap in hand for some money? We're in that space at the moment. It is really difficult because there's no history of the organisation. We have been working on a joint venture with uh, Iron Road Limited and Macquarie Capital, and that's around the port. Um, We're probably in, in a in a stalled situation at the moment because, you know, some of the key elements that the farmers want to bring to that relationship probably haven't been agreed by the other parties and vice versa. So, you know, that's a work in progress. But having said that, we are still working in our own right as a cooperative, and that's about making some relationships, including with the financial institutions and some other groups that see merit. The, the, the classic problem being that if you look at what, we're wanting to do on a straight transactional basis and the sort of rewards that institutions want. Um, from a farming perspective, we think they probably can't be delivered um, in, in a grain-only operation, which is why farmers wanted to align with Iron Road and for that port to be multi-commodity so that the burden is actually shared by other industries. And that's still our default position, is that Iron Road project goes ahead and agriculture uh, becomes part of that. We've been working on a grain-first project that is still potentially possible, but um, there's quite a bit more work to to do in that space. So that's a, you know, I'm I'm going all around the subject without answering, I guess, in a sense, but, you know, there's no magic beans there. I guess it's an area that if governments collectively of whatever colour believes that the cooperative movement has something to offer as an alternative structure. And I, I think cooperative movement and cooperatives in general have a huge amount to offer communities where services are being withdrawn. And if we go to the American experience, you know, it was the Depression era that saw the great rise of the, particularly the electricity cooperatives in America where governments had defaulted and said, no, no, we don't want to be involved in that. And look, we're approaching that in rural Australia, in not just in our case, it's agriculture, but you could talk about health. 
the classic of a great rural community that can't attract doctors. And everybody talks about the problem, everybody complains about the problem, and governments say we're doing a hell of a lot and nothing changes. So there's a whole area, a group of areas, both uh, commercial and social, where cooperatives potentially have a place. But given that they don't fit in this um, financial reward process of the corporate world and the private enterprise world, then it would seem to me that there could be a great role for government to, uh, to assist certainly capital attraction and, and putting in place some capital instruments that, that co-ops that have done the hard yards and have got good plans and good place can actually go to. If that was the case, then that would also increase the attractiveness of those cooperatives to the commercial world. I think that's a big area that is still to, still to play out. And hopefully the BCCM, for instance, uh, continues to work hard in that space. I, I don't sense that governments have really grasped it. Having said that, the, federal, the last federal government or the last federal governments have probably done more in this space than anybody in the last 20 years. But I, but I think there's some great opportunities out there just begging for some understanding and some, and some real grabbing of the vision. There is the danger possibly of a distraction there at the same time that you've got your farmers who are primarily there to produce grain and to export that as the cooperative becomes more entrenched on the Air Peninsula and you're talking about other services. How do you juggle the two? I don't think you juggle the two. So I guess what I'd be saying is that there would be other other cooperatives. Um, you know, so so I'm, I'm not talking about expansion of us being all things to all people but rather saying the model, I think, can, can certainly be expanded and, and groups of people with like interests, you know, can, can possibly utilise the cooperative model going forward. So, so one of the key things for us to keep focused on is, in fact, what is, our, what is it, the main game, is what we're there for. And, and while we have another of other things happening, um, you know, I don't think there's a board meeting where we don't go back and say what's what's the basis of what we're on about. The Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals today is on the Air Peninsula and talking to Tim Schultz, who is the CEO of uh, the Air Peninsula Cooperative Bulk Handling, a farmer himself. Tim, the issue of climate change, global warming and... Um, you're in a very dry area as it is already. You've got yourself involved in that as well with um, such things as uh, a video of uh, how do you farm under a warming climate, a warming farm. What's prompted that? Uh, look, that, was done, that wasn't done with me being a cooperative CEO. That was done with me being just an individual farmer and probably my local government connections. Um, but... Um, uh, obviously, Air Peninsula is one of those locations that can potentially and probably is already potentially being affected with changes to winter rainfall patterns. It's interesting that as a local council, uh, Woodner Local Council, we had a conference about 10 years ago and uh, our keynote speaker, it's actually more than 10 years ago now, probably 12 or 13 years ago, our keynote speaker for that conference of all councils on Air Peninsula was Professor Will Stephan. So he's... Uh, well-known in the climate change, and he came and gave absolutely riveting presentation. I think half the people there thought, you know, what on earth are we doing listening to this? But 
yeah, as events have unfolded, it's been pretty spot on. So from climate change perspective, you know, it's about agriculture modifying its approach and learning to live with climate change. And, and while we will see differing winter rainfall patterns, certainly we potentially will see differing summer rainfall patterns. And so what has, what has I guess, evolved is farmers trying to conserve every drop of rain that falls, regardless of when it falls around the year. But having said that, where, where the cooperative potentially has a place, and this gets back to low-carbon farming, the premise of green ammonia or hydrogen green ammonia production is the splitting of water to produce hydrogen and oxygen and then ammonia. And, of course, that requires immense amounts of power. Now, if there is any carbon involved in the electricity that drives those operations, then it's not green. It's either blue or brown or whatever. So one of the reasons why Eponinch is looked at as a place for significant hydrogen and ammonia production is that it has extremely good wind resources and obviously it's a hot, dry place. Um, for production units to be developed on Air Peninsula, they need a big source of power. And the connection we made with H2U was, well, you know, we're looking at wind power and solar power have a guess who owns the land. And it's in fact farmers that own the land that people want to put wind turbines on predominantly and, and solar panels. So rather than again, farmers sitting back and just waiting for somebody to ride over the hill and offer them this super deal and be the snake oil salesman that this solves all the problems, it made sense to talk with HTU and say, look, let's work with farmers who are interested in this space as opposed to trying to do it in a disruptive manner. So part of, a, of our memorandum of understanding with H2U is in fact to look at um, establishing a database of resources available on Air Peninsula and farmers who are willing to be involved in that and just seeing where that, where that takes us. Um, we're already seeing it in you know, areas in New South Wales where if a farmer puts uh, a portion of his land under solar panels, um, yeah, effectively he's drought proofing that operation. I'm not one that wants to see our whole landscape uh, covered in reflective glass. And having said that, if ammonia and hydrogen are the go, that is going to be one of the outcomes we'll see. So then how do you put that in agricultural landscape, make, manage it so that it doesn't become an issue in its own right? In fact, maybe we've got to start thinking about solar being predominantly in the more marginal lands, um, wind resources are where they are, but then maybe the solar panels need to be of such that um, you can graze livestock in, in the setups, and that's happening certainly overseas. So there's a whole area there, and how does that relate to grain? Well, it does, because also at the same time, we're seeing companies around the world wanting farmers to basically be able to audit their carbon usage. So we're seeing CBH in Western Australia putting money into identifying low-carbon grain production. So again, if you join the dots, they're a bit obscure, but this is all about us as farmers and with the co-op being able to reduce our supply chain costs, but also remain relevant in whatever way the world continues to involve, both with marketing our grain, but also in um, reducing our carbon footprint from our inputs. 
that gets again back to the green ammonia for fertilizer, potentially hydrogen trucks, for instance. Um, there are hydrogen hybrid tractors now on sale in, in Europe, and some of the major manufacturers are doing a lot of research in things like fuel cell powered harvesters. So that is the world we're going into. I might see it in my time, but that is the world we're going into. And it made sense that people thought a group of farmers wanting to collectively work in this space was valuable. Well, then we should take the opportunity to be there if it's offered. And that's what's happening. It certainly changes the image of uh, a co-op, particularly in the traditional area of farming with cropping and cereal, that uh, you're now looking at such things as uh, green ammonia and you're, you're looking at also going further into other energy. Did you envisage when you were growing up that possibly that would be the way that co-ops would be going and, and particularly on the Air Peninsula? No, no, not in the slightest. I suppose in summer, summing up energy, I think I've said at a number of conferences, you know, this, this is absolutely no different. We farm sheep. We, we use... We use renewable energy to grow our crops. You know, we take the wind and the rain and the sunshine to produce um, grain. And at the same time, we have all this latent energy that falls on our land every day, either in wind or, or sun. And we have the land. So really, this is just another form of farming. We're actually wanting to turn that latent energy into uh, ultimately a revenue stream to support the energy that, uh, goes into production of uh, wool, meat, beef, whatever actual uh, farm produce we're currently doing. It's just another another usage of the same energy. Tim Schultz is the CEO of the Air Peninsula Cooperative Bulk Handling. He's been my guest today. Tim, it's been great hearing about how a traditional part of farming is getting very involved in other areas through its co-op. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. Tim Schultz, Managing Director of Air Peninsula Cooperative Bulk Handling. Michael, this is cooperation between a co-op and a mining company, as heard in this podcast in the series of Meet the Co-op Farmers. Now, Melina, looking at a future podcast, there's often the view by some that they wish they had shares in the local pub. Well, in the case of one Victorian town, that's exactly what some of the residents have done. And it's all through a co-op. That's coming up in a future podcast. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of Meet the Co-op Farmers. If you'd like to know anything about setting up or running a successful agricultural cooperative, you can find out everything you need to know at the Co-op Farming website. That's www.coopfarming.coop. That's right, C-O-O-P for cooperative. Please, share this with your mates. If you enjoyed this story, we really do want to get the great stories of farming cooperation out there. And remember, in a troubled world, with all of the challenges but also the opportunities we have, we really are better together. I'm Melina Morrison and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Meet the Co-op Farmers.